Thank you for the introduction. Um, I am currently visiting um, professor at University of Tokyo and at the Graduate Research Institute for Policy Studies, um, based in Roppongi. It's a very nice location. Um, and I've been here since uh, September, and I will be here until the end of the year. And sadly, you know, we're starting to pack our bags already because uh, I'm here with a family of four, and it takes a lot of stuff. I mean, it takes a lot of time to, you know, move around. Um, but so, yes, my time here is limited, sadly, but uh, I like to make the best use of my remaining time here. Um, thank you very much for that wonderful introduction. Um, <clears throat> so today I'm going to talk about my latest research on happiness. Um, I have several uh, work going on in this area. Um, and the latest paper that just came out in October, two months ago, um, and this one is uh, uses the same data set as I will be using today. And this one looks at like the cohabitation and marriage gap in international comparison. It's, um, I think it's kind of interesting. I, I believe that there's a lot of Europeans here tonight. And so, you know, I think that the issue of cohabitation is a very interesting topic for um, the European audience. Um, I will speak about that later tonight, but um, basically, you know, you see like this, uh, you know, there's always this discussion about um, are cohabiting people just as happy as married people? And they, and it get it can get very political sometimes, right? That, that there's, there are very conservative people that believe that marriage is a holy institution and that cohabitation is not. And so people that cohabit, their happiness should be lower uh, compared to married people. But as I argue, uh, it depends on where you live and it depends on the social institutional context. So there are ways to you know, investigate this, what we call the marriage cohabitation gap using statistical methods. Um, <clears throat> this paper that came out in 2008 also talks about um, what happens when you divide up labor. I'll, I'll, I'll uh, perhaps uh, share some of those highlights with you in a couple of slides. And I have, uh, most of the stuff in Japanese is really written for like a popular audience, which is kind of interesting. You know, if you write for the media, there's no referees, right? And you can bypass the referees and you can basically say whatever you want without going through the referee process. And so, you know, I say in these publications, um, stuff that I would never be able to publish in academic journals. So if you understand Japanese, it might be interesting to, to see what I have to say on these topics. Um, <clears throat> let me go ahead and skip to, uh, so happiness science is, uh, as you, many of you have realized, uh, it is a field of um, research in social sciences that's really um, flourishing right now. And it's not just sociology. Uh, it's, you know, it's sociology, economics, political science, psychology, of course. Um, <clears throat> and it is a, again, a growing field of science in the social sciences. And really the starting point is that um, there's a fundamental assumption in human behavior that we do things to make us happy. But if you really think about it, you know, it hasn't been a scientific approach to, to see what makes us happy. 
And that's probably one of the reasons that why we're seeing so much attention to happiness studies, is to try to figure out those things that make us happy. And so in a very isolated case, you, know, you can look at a happiness in one time, in one country, right? Uh, and then there are other ways to look at this, you know, like how, see happiness is how, how that's changed in the last 50 years or something. You look at longitudinal data. And then what I'm going to try to do today is to look at it in its international, you know, comparison that, you know, what makes Japan unique or what makes Germany unique or um, whatnot. And so it's kind of interesting to see how, you know, happiness uh, differs across countries. Um, I wanted to... Uh, show you uh, some of my um, uh, highlights from my previous work to, to get things started. And by the way, I think that clock is maybe four minutes early or something, according to my watch. Okay. So, you know, I'll, I'm going to talk for maybe 45 minutes or so, but if you have any questions for clarification for whatever, you know, please feel free to raise your hand and I'll be happy to answer any questions at any time. So um, <clears throat> the, this paper uh, about specialization, happiness, and marriage uh, looked at, uh, you know, because I, my, my background is in sociology, and what we believe in sociology is that, you know, the social institutional context really matters, right? Economists believe that there's a universal model of human behavior, right? And that could be, in very straightforward terms, rationality and cost-benefit analysis. Sociologists would say, well, the rationality is there, but the, the, that rationality and the rational decision depends on the institutional context. People's behavior are constrained by the social institutional context. So what we wanted to establish in this paper was just look at two countries, U.S. and Japan, and see, you know, how happiness differs uh, and how, you know, how institutional constraints might affect people's behavior. Um, and we look at this differently for men and women. So, because if you think about it, you know what makes men happy, or probably it's probably not going to be the same as what makes women happy, right? And we know that from our everyday lives that you know women are made happier by different things. You know, in America, we have these stereotypes like, well, women are happy if they go shopping or something. You know, you couldn't really say that in in a political correct way, but, you know, and what makes men happy is really, really simple, etc. So, um, <clears throat> yeah, so, you know, just starting from intuition, intuition and anecdotal evidence, we can see that, well, what makes men happy is probably not going to be the same uh, for women. And I also look at how division of labor in the household differs, I mean, how this could affect people's happiness, right? So the most extreme case of this is what we call specialization. Okay, so specialization is uh, when one spouse specializes in one, uh, like market work, and the other one specializes in non-market work. In very simple, you know, uh, ways, we can say the typical pattern that we observe in many countries, many traditional countries, such as Japan, is that the man specializes in work, woman specializes in housework or homework. Um, <clears throat> And according to economists, you know, it's, you know, you apply the theory of comparative advantage and say, well, whoever has the comparative advantage in market work should specialize in market work, and the other should specialize in non-market work. And um, so that's the starting point. But what I really wanted to say was that, you know, not, the outcome is not going to be household production 
or income, but the outcome is going to be happiness, right? So how does that division of labor affect people's happiness in marriage? So that's what really drove our research. So um, let me show you uh, some very basic um, patterns, and I'm going to walk around here, so I'm going to carry this mic around with me, okay? Is that working? Okay. So um, this is very, very typical data that we see in happiness research. Uh, so now we're looking at marital satisfaction as a function of age. And this is the age of the respondent. And so typically what you find is that you find this U-shaped curve in happiness, right? So peop, um, <clears throat> you see this uh, in pretty much in all countries. Uh, you know, I think the Japan case is probably easier to see. You see this U-shaped pattern. Um, one exception here might be the U.S. men, right? So statistically what this is saying, that there's no statistically significant effect across age, uh, that U.S. men, you know, in very flat terms, is they're really boring, right? That their happiness doesn't fluctuate across the life cycle. They're just pretty stable across the age. Um, so if you look at the Japan case, you know, you can see that it's pretty U-shaped, and this is the age of respondent. And so, in anecdotal terms, you say this is the midlife crisis, right? That people in their age 40s and 50s, their happiness bottoms out as they approach the age of retirement and older ages, they, their happiness recovers. So this is what we call the U-shaped pattern of happiness. And it's, uh, it's pretty much confirmed in um, every single country. And, um, and this is a... Another way of looking at uh, happiness, and this is uh, marital satisfaction in the case of Japan only, and this is duration in marriage. So again, we see the, the usual U-shaped pattern, and this is like not so encouraging for, you know, for some people, but so it basically says that your happiness in marriage plummets as soon as you get married. Okay? And then um, you know, it, it recovers after 20 years or so. Um, <coughs> And then, very similar for, for the age of the youngest child, meaning that you know, the, the, there's a difficulty. I mean, if, if, you, if you look at the age of the youngest child, your happiness, the effect of hap children on happiness or marital happiness, is pretty much negative for the first 20 years, and then it recovers after that. And, then, and this, again, is like a life cycle event, right? So like, especially in a very expensive country uh, like the United States, or Japan for that matter, Children are very expensive, right? And so for the first 20 years, they can be, they're very, they're consuming. And then as soon as they start, you know, leaving for college or whatnot, your happiness starts to recover. So it, it is kind of consistent with life cycle events. Um, and so this kind of like, you know, you take age or age of the youngest child, you always tend to see this U-shaped pattern. And what we find, you know, this is a, a journal cover Called the, uh, it's a journal called Social Research, and they did a special issue on happiness, and they drew this smiley face, basically, saying that, okay, um, this is a very consistent pattern. Let's look at something that's more interesting. Okay? So that's a very uh, consistent pattern that we find. Um, and so some of the... Um, Highlights from the 2008 paper is, so we're looking at uh, men and women separately. Um, and what's interesting is that in the case of U.S. men, we find that uh, men are 
happier if their lives are not working. You know, and you think about that for a while, and and um, and it's this is a case of what we call in sociology. It's called competing values, right? So, people in general, and I was, this is kind of consistent with what I was talking about with the director before I came here. Um, is that you know people espouse these very lofty ideals? That do you believe in gender equality? Yes. Do you want your wife to work? No. Right, and it's it's inconsistent with the lofty ideology, and that's what we call we call competing values. That you know, obviously, it, it, it could be any controversial topic. Like, do you believe in racial equality, gender equality, whatnot? There's a very famous case in sociology, actually. That is, do you believe in racial equality? Yes. Do you want a black person living next to you? No. <clears throat> so this is, in my in our view an interesting case of competing values that in the case of U.S. men, there seems to be an inconsistency with what they believe and what, their, what, what they want their wives to, um, <clears throat> to do. Uh, in the case of women in the U.S., uh, what we find very interesting is that uh, women are happier if they're earning high incomes themselves. Okay? And this, in, in, in demography literature, we call this the bargaining model, saying that uh, it's not a case of dependency, but independence, that women are just happier if they have, I mean, income, assuming that income drives up your bargaining position in the, in the household, their bargaining position increases with their own income, right? So you can look, this, look at this in many ways. You can look at this, like, for example, contribution to household income, right? If your contribution is 0%, you have zero bargaining power. If your contribution is greater than 50%, then you have a pretty good bargaining position. And in the case of complete specialization, if you're contributing 100% of your income to the household and the other spouse is not, then you've got it, right? You have the ultimate bargaining position. So the case of U.S. women seems to be consistent with the bargaining uh, model. Um, and the Japanese men also uh, appears to to um, support the bargaining position. The interesting finding from the Japanese women is that, uh, first of all, Japanese women are happier if they're not working themselves. Okay, so this is another kind of perhaps a little controversial finding that here we are. We we live in an age of gender equality, and we believe that you know having a higher labor force participation rate or equal rates of participation between men and women is good. But it seems like, in Japanese, this is like the Japanese woman's honne, that uh, it seems like really what Japanese women are saying is that a lot of them just don't want to work, right? Um, <clears throat> and the other interesting thing is that Japanese women, they don't really care about their own income. They care about their husband's income. Right? So the husband's income drives up their happiness. And this is what we call in Japanese anatomy of dependence. Right? In Japanese, we call it amae, that you know, there's a dependency between husband and wife. Uh, Japanese women don't want to work. They're happy if, that, if they're not working, and they're happier if their husbands are you know, achieving high status. Right? Um, so their status and their happiness is achieved through their, their husband's occupation, their husband's income, their husband's status in society. Okay? 
um, <clears throat> and of course, there's a lot of work on this area, I think, among anthropologists about the anatomy of dependence, uh, something that is very unique to Japan. Uh, in Anglo-Saxon, U.S., European context, dependency is not necessarily a good thing. In fact, it's probably bad, right, that you should be independent, that, you know, man, woman, child, uh, whatnot, you're, you're told to be independent. But in the Japanese context, dependency is actually good. And I think that through this, you know, statistical exercise, we were able to uncover this anatomy of dependence. So in a nutshell, uh, oh, that's what the interesting thing that came out of this is that um, U.S. men and Japanese women are actually pretty well matched, right? U.S. men and U.S. women, they don't really match very well. And, you know, I mean, perhaps that explains the high divorce rate in, in the United States, but U.S. men and Japanese women are actually pretty well matched because, uh, you know, U.S. men don't want their wives to work and Japanese women don't want to be working, right? So in a natural you know, setting, that would be a very perfect match. I mean, I'm definitely not a marriage counselor, but that's what the stat, you know, stats are saying, if you believe in statistics. Um, and so basically what this research told us to do, yes. They don't, that doesn't really seem to affect them, you know, so there's a, you know, in the, in the statistical model, we put in a, um, one category for whether your spouse is working or not, and it doesn't seem to affect them, right? Um, it shows up on the men, uh, for, for in the U.S., but not in, not in Japan, okay? And I should also say, like, you know, if you think about the match between Japanese men and U.S. women, that's not really a great match either because, you know, Japanese men, what makes them happy is that, you know, they drive high income themselves so they can make their ha wives happy. But in the case of U.S. women, husbands' earnings ha has absolutely no effect on their happiness, right? It doesn't matter how hard the husband is working, like, it doesn't affect them. So it's, I think that one of, the, one of the reasons, you know, that Japanese men work so hard to earn so, so much money is to make their wives happy, right? And it seems to work. Um, <clears throat> but not with U.S. women. Um, anecdotally speaking, I'm a Japanese man married to an American woman, and so <laughs> I'm not really sure what that has to say for the quality of match in our marriage, but um, yes, it doesn't really, yes, my income doesn't really seem to have much of an effect, yes, <laughs> I should say. Okay. Um, so, so my research, this two-country comparison, no, uh, really showed us that uh, the context is really important, that people are constrained by, you know, the institutional context. And this uh, seems to uh, appear in, their, in the happiness. And so the extension of that is to go to the international comparison. And so that's <clears throat> where we begin, and what we try to do is we look at you know, country-level factors and individual-level factors simultaneously. So the country-level factors that could drive, potentially drive people's happiness are the things that are lived here, like GDP, the Human Development Index, inequality, 
uh, in other contextual matters like religion and traditional gender beliefs, right? Um, <clears throat> individual level factors, you know, we have the usual suspects that would be like individual level income, education, uh, marital status, children, employment, and sex, okay? And, and sex here is um, <clears throat> not gender, but sex itself. And there's been a study uh, done, I believe, in the UK, which looks at, you know, the correlation between sex and happiness. And sure enough, there's a pretty strong positive correlation. And that relates a little bit with this here, uh, marriage and cohabitation, because one of the reasons that we consistently find a positive effect of marriage on happiness, and, and one of the reasons that we find that is because, uh, because we believe that it, it, people in marriage have stable sex lives. Okay? The most miserable finding that you find in happiness is like divorced and single people. And so, you know, there's a, there's a correlation between sex and marital status, and perhaps, you know, that's the, the sex effect is being picked up through there, okay? So um, <clears throat> that is uh, research coming out of the UK, which I believe is quite interesting, okay? And so let's look at some of the uh, work on, that's been done on the international, you know, comparisons of happiness. So here we're looking at uh, GMP per capita on the horizontal. And on the vertical, we have aggregate measures of happiness. And this is a world, uh, I mean, this is a uh, data coming out of the World Value Survey data. And so what we find is we have, there's an overall positive correlation between uh, income levels at the country level and happiness, um, but you, you can also look at, you know, you can also say that, well, there seems to be an overall positive correlation, but there's also a lot of variance that's unexplained, okay? So if you look at just, for example, like the left side of this graph, and say like, suppose you take a GNP per capita of between $1,000 and $5,000, uh, um, <clears throat> there's a whole range of countries here in this region, right? So obviously, GNP per capita is not explaining a whole lot of variance in happiness. And also, if you look at it this way, if you look at the top half of this graph, you can see that, well, I mean, you compare countries like Japan and Austria, well, they have very similar levels of happiness as Philippines and Brazil, right? So again, you know, there's a lot of variance that's not being explained. So what this basically says is that, well, GNP per capita uh, could explain some of the variance in happiness, but uh, there's a lot that has to be that remains to be explained. And I put a circle up there at the very top because those are, for the most part, the OECD countries. So if you look at just the OECD countries, you definitely see this pattern that, well, the GNP per capita is not going to explain a whole lot among the OECD countries. So when you look at these international comparisons, it's kind of important to look at the sample of countries, right? that um, unfortunately a lot, of the OE, a lot of the happiness studies that are coming out is based on the OECD countries, right? Um, and obviously it doesn't, you can't explain a, a lot of variance in, in happiness among the OECD countries only. And so, you know, next time, you know, these studies come out, we should be careful about, you know, what the, what the, the sample selection of the countries are. And here's another uh, graph that looks at um, 
uh, GDP per capita and happiness. And this is uh, um, data coming from the, uh, the Gallup organization. Those are the people that take surveys of you know, TV, um, whether people are watching TV or not. And, and so this is 132 countries. And to the best of my knowledge, that is probably the biggest sample of countries that you can ever get in a happiness studies. Okay? And this was published in 2008. Um, and again, they, they, uh, what they, the authors um, confirm a positive, overall positive correlation in GDP and happiness. But um, it's not necessarily, you know, again, if you look at these clusters of countries, uh, th there's a lot of variance that remains to be explained. So um, <coughs> what we did in our own paper is to look at, um, okay, so what country level factors to ma make people happy? And the one we focus on is what we call public social expenditures um, as percentage of GDP. So how much does a country spend on public social expenditures? And we look at that, those expenditures, as a percentage of GDP. We also look at taxes as percentage of GDP, tax revenues as um, percentage of GDP. So who are the high PSE countries? Uh, you know, obviously, these are going to be the welfare states, like Sweden, Denmark, fin um, uh, Norway is also very high on the list. And the low PSE countries are going to be like Philippines, Mexico, and Russia. The Russia should be, this should be 10. Russia should be 10. Um, so we get a reasonable range of countries according to the PSE scale. Okay. Um, <clears throat> and so there's a, the background of why we decided to go with the PSE is that around 2007, there's an OECD uh, study that came out and that ranked uh, Denmark, Finland, Netherlands, and Sweden are the happiest countries in the world according to the OECD study. The U.S. ranked number 11, okay? And so this sparked a debate about what we call a political economy of happiness, okay? If you look, if you look at those countries, Sweden, Denmark, Finland, these are countries that have really, really huge welfare states and huge governments, right? So uh, the media's reaction to this was very predictable. Um, that there's a positive correlation between taxes and happiness, and then there are people saying that there's a causation between taxes and happiness, that you know, if you want to get people happy, you tax them, you know, which is absolutely the wrong you know, conclusion to draw from these studies. So, um, <clears throat> and then what was also interesting was that there was a reaction from the right, extreme conservatives, saying that, okay, you know, the conservative think tanks in the United States don't like to see the U.S. ranked number 11, especially behind the welfare states of Scandinavian countries, right? Saying that that's just impossible. Um, the U.S. cannot be ranked below uh, Norway, Sweden, and Denmark. And they could not accept this fact. And so what they did was they, they came up with all these reports saying that happiness research is absolutely wrong. You know, that doesn't, it's not scientific. Um, any study, basically any study that ranks the U.S. below the U.S., I mean, the, Europe must be wrong, right? So that was a very 
not a very constructive argument, uh, but it, it, it was part of its debate about the political economy of happiness. So um, we are not po uh, political scientists, uh, and we are sociologists, and we wanted to steer away from this political debate. Uh, but we also wanted to just make sure that we want to establish this fact that what makes people happy depends on the social institutional context. Um, <clears throat> so, for example, are women happier than men? Right? There's lots of studies saying that there's like a women are less happy or women are happier than men. But uh, that that question itself is interesting. But we also say, well, it depends on the institutional context, right? Um, if you look at these uh, aggregate rankings of happiness, I mean, rankings of aggregate happiness, and if you see that Sweden is ranked above Germany or the U.S., for example, I mean, can we really assume that everybody in Sweden is going to be, you know, happier than the average American, right? It, it, to, to us, it doesn't really seem to, that, that's not a very, very helpful measure. Um, and what we wanted to do was to, to tr try to, you know, use kind, some kind of a social um, uh, statistical technique to identify uh, how this public social expenditures affect people in different ways in different countries. So um, that's just a, I'll, I'll go through a few slides talking about the, the welfare states. Um, how does that work? Um, the first thing that we can say is that um, <clears throat> welfare states is public management of social risk. Right? So this is very famous quote from Esping Anderson. Um, and there's in order to uh, publicly manage social risk, it involves massive redistribution. So <clears throat> one uh, way that they do this is a pro-family ideology. Um, and so <clears throat> One, uh, for example, in the, in the welfare state context, families are assumed to be at higher risk than single people. And why is that? And if you have a family, I'm sure you, you can understand this, but if you're a family of four like I am, if one child gets sick, somebody must, might, might have to stay home, right? So instead of just managing your own risk, you're managing other people's risk. So... On average, you know, families face higher risk than single people. I mean, single people, I was single once, yes, it's, it's, it's a great way to live, and you're just basically responsible for yourself. But in families, you're responsible for others, and that makes it a high-risk, you know, status. Um, and another, you know, very easy uh, example of redistribution is income redistribution, right? So in order to provide a safety net for people in poverty, what you do is you redistribute wealth from wealthy people to poor people, right? So there's a redistribution that takes place from high income to low income people to try to equalize those, those risks. Um, <clears throat> so the point here is that, okay, that's wonderful. That's, so that's in a welfare state in a nutshell. Is, you know, there's a massive redistribution mechanism taking place. But the point here is that the redistribution in itself might generate new inequalities. Okay? For example one, rich people. If you take away resources from the rich people and transfer them to the poor people, that might make the rich people less happy and the poor people more happy. Right? Um, Example two, single people. Does the welfare state discriminate against single people? Well, in a way it does, right? So you basically, you know, 
families get full benefits: you know, child care, paternity leave, maternity leave, child subsidies. Single people get taxed like hell, right?、Um, like when I, based on my experience,、uh, my first job, I, I got my PhD in the United States, and my first job was in Sweden. And I moved from the United States to Sweden, and I was single in Sweden for about four years, and that was pretty miserable time in a sense, from a tax perspective, because you are being taxed. This is the the most heavily taxed country in the world, and you're not getting any benefits, right?、Um, and as soon as you get married, you know, so we get married, we have kids, and then the benefits really kick in. And so from a, from that marital status, you know, point of view.、Um, Single people, it's not, it, being single in the welfare states is not a very happy place to be. Okay, if you're going to be single, be single in the United States. Might be a better solution. <clears throat> so,、um, so there's different ways to think about, you know, how this redistribution might affect people differently, right?、Um, and so we, what we try to do is that we examine these transfer effects from the、uh, in areas of family, marriage, and income, and see. You know what we find. So the benchmark in the hypothesis, the benchmark is going to be the low PSE countries. So this is like Philippines.、Um, <clears throat> welfare,、uh, the high PSE countries for the with the welfare states. So how much do the welfare states deviate? You know, happiness、uh, deviate from、uh, what we observe in the low PSE countries. Okay. Uh, the data and methods we use、uh, data from 2002. We've called the International Social Survey Program.、Uh, very common data set that we use in the social sciences. There's 29 countries and 42,000 respondents. There's approximately 1,000 to 1,500 respondents in a country. So, statistically, the setup is that you have individuals nested within countries. Okay, so we apply this technique called、um, hierarchical linear models. It's hierarchical because the the the, the We have a country-level、uh, covariate, and then we have individuals nested within countries. So it is hierarchical. Economists call it the random intercept, random coefficient model,、um, or multi-level modeling. But it's basically the same thing. The dependent variable is going to be general life happiness. So one is very low,、um, completely unhappy, and seven is completely happy. <clears throat> so.、Um, Let me just get to the、uh, right before I'm out of time. Go through the findings here. Well, the first thing we're looking at correlation tables, and a very obvious finding is that you know we have if you plot PSE on the、oh, here and then taxes here, there's a very very strong correlation, right? There's a very strong correlation between public social expenditures and taxes. The high tax countries are the the ones that have the the biggest spendings on public social expenditures. So again, down here we see countries, you know, Philippines, Taiwan, and Mexico. Up there, you see the the, the Scandinavian welfare states.、Um, USA, Japan happens to be in the middle in this in this continuum. PSE and happiness. You can see that there's not much of a correlation between PSE and happiness,、um, which kind of so again, you know, this is.、Uh, <clears throat> Going back to the the debate on political economy of happiness, at least based on the data set that we use, which is the ISSB, we don't see any correlation between PSE and happiness. And if you also we we also don't see any correlation if you do taxes and happiness. Okay, so the the political economy of happiness debate doesn't seem to apply,、uh, at least in the data that we look at.
Okay. Um, happiness at the country level. So what what makes a big um, you know impact for happiness at the country level? Uh, one definite uh, that's the strongest impact happens to be Eastern Europe. Okay. So if you look at the the cluster of countries down here, you can see that. Um, these are the so-called, uh, you know, the, the transition economies, Estonia, Romania, uh, Bulgaria, Russia, Lithuania. So there's a very, very, you know, obvious cluster of Eastern European countries at the very, very low end of the happiness scale. Okay, and this isn't something that's been consistently confirmed um, in international studies. Uh, I mentioned here Layard um, and others, but um, also Deaton, um, who uh, who did the research using 132 countries, also confirms that in, in his data set of 132 countries, the Eastern European dummy was probably like the strongest impact at the country level. So this is, is a, uh, a very consistent finding. And what we do is we try to, um, what, what we do is we use East Europe as a control in all of our um, analysis. So this is... Um, <clears throat> So we're looking at regression models uh, predicting general happiness, and we separate this into like country level and individual level factors. Uh, you know, so that for example, the the Eastern European country dummy is uh, at the country level is negative throughout all models. So I won't comment on that. Uh, and if you look at the first model, what we find is that for example, uh, married people and cohabiting people are happier than the benchmark, which in this case happens to be you know, um, divorced, separated, widowed, and single. Okay, so compared to non-married people and non-cohabiting people, there's, there's a positive effect of happiness across all countries. Uh, the other thing that we find is that what we call this red effect, which is the cross-level interaction. Okay, so to take the example of uh, married times country level PSC, what we find is that this interaction effect is positive. So, yes, marriage, married people are happy um, on average, but married ha people are even happier in the high PSC countries. That's what we call the cross-level interaction effect using the hierarchical linear models. Okay, so uh, if you take the, for example, in the benchmark country Philippines, you know, you see, you know, yes, people Married people in the Philippines are happier, but um, if you take the high PSC country like Sweden, they're saying that, well, that happiness, I mean, the marriage premium is even bigger in Sweden compared to the Philippines. That's what we call the cross-country level interaction. Uh, going on to model two, we see that, um, yes, yeah, single country level PSC. So single people on average are less happy. Um, which kind of confirms you know, what we said earlier. So married people are happy, cohabiting people are happy, but compared to those married people, the single people are definitely not happy. Okay? Now, you can, uh, can also see that we observe that the country-level PSE is negative, meaning that in the high PSE countries, single people are even less happy. Right? So that kind of confirms that, that, you know, the redistribution mechanism that um, if you're going to be single, don't be single in Sweden because that, that's according to the statistics, you're gonna, uh, you know, being single makes people unhappy, but that negative effect is even bigger in the high PSE countries. Okay. Um, 
Now, if you, if you break it down between men and women, what we find is that, okay, first of all, the East European dummy is consistently negative. Uh, the, the main difference between men and women here is that this negative child effect, okay? So on average, children have a negative effect on happiness um, across countries. But that, the cross-level interaction effect is positive. So the negative effect of children is smaller in high PC countries, right? And that really makes sense because what is Sweden and Norway? What are the welfare states famous for? Well, they're very famous for their pro-family ideology, right? So if you're going to have a family, do it in Sweden, basically. And if you're going to have, a, in, in the low PSC countries like Philippines, it's going to having a child is going to be very, very difficult uh, because you have you don't have that kind of a support that you find in Sweden. And so the negative effect of children is going to be um, actually bigger in Philippines than compared to um, <coughs> Sweden. And also, if you look at on the men's side, you know, there's no effect of children on men, right? So it doesn't seem to affect men at all across countries that, you know, if you want to have a child, that's fine. It's not going to affect me, you know? So this is kind of like perhaps consistent with, you know, uh, our everyday lives that we hear in everyday lives, or anecdotal evidence that uh, the, the responsibility and the burden of raising children really falls on the woman. And we see that you know, across countries. But the negative effect is also different across uh, the social institutional context. Okay. Um, here, let me get to the income effect. So what we find here is that so this is the effect of income on happiness, and so this, the vertical is the happiness uh, measure, and this is income here, and uh, this is PSC, right? So this is low PSC, um, and this is high PSC. And we plot income here, so these are poor people, these are rich people, and across the whole range of PSC countries, you find that, well, basically the, um, the effect of income on happiness is positive, right? So the slope of income on happiness is always positive in any country that you look at. So richer people are happier than poor people. That's a consistent finding you know, anywhere. That makes sense, right? But the slope is really different, okay? So every level you know, of called marginal effect of income on happiness is much stronger in the low PSC countries than in the high PSC countries, right? So every increment of happiness, every inc increment of income brings bigger happiness in Philippines than in Sweden, right? Um, so does income make people happy? Yes, but that effect is bigger in the Philippines than in Sweden, right? Um, <coughs> so you know, it basically says that, uh, that rich people in the Philippines is really, really happy, right? Rich people in poor country, a very happy outcome. A, low, uh, a very poor person in a very poor country could be uh, not a very, you know, happy place to live. And if you're going to be poor, you should live in a high PC country. That also makes sense, right? That, you know people in low-income categories are protected by the social welfare state. So compared to a low, you know, 
PSA country compared to a country that does not have a safety net, low-income people are significantly more happy. I could talk about this graph for you know, 10 more minutes or so, but I should keep going. Um, I think that the, uh, the results are you know, very uh, consistent with um, uh, usual observations. Um, and the 3D graph might be a little bit uh, confusing, but um, it does make sense. So um, is happiness greater in the welfare states? Well, uh, the sociological answer to that is that it depends on whom you ask. Um, PSE itself has no direct effect on happiness, right? So there's no correlation between PSE and happiness at the aggregate level. So again, you know, going back to the politics of economy, I mean, politics of happiness debate, our uh, research does not suggest any support for, you know, wealth, uh, bigger government or bigger welfare states contributing to people's happiness across the board. There's no correlation. But uh, what we find is that uh, the redistributive effects of welfare states seems to affect people's happiness as well. So in the welfare states, we find greater happiness for married people, cohabiting couples, and women with children, but lower happiness for single people and rich people. And this is really consistent with the direction that redistribution you know, takes place in these countries. Um, <clears throat> So it kind of goes back to this idea that, yes, uh, welfare states, uh, they, it is a public management of social risk. And they try to uh, achieve this equality of outcomes through redistribution. But in doing so, they generate new forms of inequality. Okay. Um, yeah, redistribution resources make some people happy and others less so. And overall, what we find, we seem to find, is that there's a leveling effect of happiness, um, as we saw with the case of, case of um, income, income distribution. So happiness of the poor is lifted, happiness of the rich is lowered. Um, <clears throat> and I say, I, I guess one thing I have to be careful to say is that, you know, some people could say, well, maybe there's like a zero-sum effect of redistribution of happiness, saying that you know some people you take, you, there's it might benefit others, it, it might benefit some people, but it might take happiness away from other people, and so there's a leveling effect, which is similar to a zero sum uh, analogy, but um, basically what I'm trying to establish here is that you know redistribution has a leveling effect on happiness, and I will stop there for now. Any questions? <laughs>